Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. Well, that is the million-dollar question. You've heard me say it over and over again. Do you want to change your recovery status? Do you want to pursue recovery and learn how to manage addiction? I know you do, and I know that's why you're listening. And we have sex addicts that listen, we have counselors and coaches that listen, and we have partners that listen. And today is going to be a fascinating show. Now, we were having some technical difficulties, and I didn't think we were going to get on the show, and that has only happened one other time since 2007. But I am so glad they figured it out. And today I'm going to be interviewing... Sam Louie, who is, he's an amazing writer, and he is a psychotherapist who's going to be sharing his memoir of addiction and recovery. And, and it's amazing because in his insightful book, Passport to Shame, From Asian Immigrant to American Addict, we're going to find out how he coped with all the stressors that occurs when you are an immigrant in this country, when you have that cultural prejudice, when you, when you want so much to fit in in so many different ways. And so we're just going to get right to it, you know. As a first-generation immigrant in this country, he identified with so much of what you're going to be hearing about today. So I want to welcome Sam Louie to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Sam, thanks for being so patient. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You're an incredible writer. You have so much to share. And I thought, you know, you decided to write this book, and I want our listening audience to understand what compelled you 
to write Passport to Shame from Asian Immigrant to American Addict? Well, I think it's been a culmination of uh, not only in my life, but also some of the experiences that uh, come into the counseling realm because I, uh, my practice is in the Seattle area where uh, it's a pretty diverse, multi-ethnic um, uh, region. So not only do I get folks who are Asian American, get African Americans, uh, Hispanic, so on and so forth, um, and then uh, just kind of taking a look at my own life and history, I felt like there was something that could be invaluable to not only help folks who are identify um, as Asian American, but also those who are helping folks. And when I say helping, that's a very broad term. It could be as formal as a therapist. It could be as um, loose as a friend and just wants to understand uh, the culture a, a bit better. Well, makes a lot of sense. Can, now, can you share with me a bit about what it means to be first generation versus second or third? I mean, I think that's a whole uh, genre in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so first generation, it's, that's the first generation from the motherland that is here in the United States. So because me, my brothers, my parents, uh, we were all born in Hong Kong, which at the time was under British rule, uh, mm-hmm. and we moved to South Seattle when I was fairly young. I was five. My parents were closer. My dad was closer to 31. My mom was in her late 20s. Um, we were, quote, unquote, we are considered the first generation here in the United States. Um, and why that's helpful and uh, important to recognize, at least for me, Uh, is because the first generation is really going through so much change and transition. Um, Maybe more so for my parents because they're coming here midstream in terms of making a big midlife change and having to relearn uh, everything, meaning they come from a very Asian or Chinese worldview, and they are now trying to integrate their past worldview with a more Americanized worldview, um, whereas second generation, those would be people like my son. He would be second generation. And then when he has children, uh, they would be third generation, which would allow for more um, integration and acculturation compared to the very first uh, generation in America. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to be talking about the stressors that you felt and dealt with um, growing up, as did your parents. But I mm-hmm. want to just ask you, uh, what did you see as some of the biggest differences uh, having, having been here in America and having been Asian uh, that actually kind of created that need to medicate with sex addiction? Well, um, there's so much. Um, I think when I'm just thinking about my own life, it didn't start, uh, like eventually later on, it got into pornography, casual sex, and quote-unquote sex addiction, but it didn't start off that way. Um, Mm -hmm. I can remember very young, uh, so our parents knew, spoke uh, what was native to, to Hong Kong is the Cantonese dialect, 
uh, of Chinese. So they spoke Cantonese. And my desire was to be as Americanized as possible. So even when relatives like my grandmother spoke Cantonese to us, I would always speak back in English, especially when I was in public. So there was already this growing uh, linguistic rift between just the ability to communicate to family members uh, and parents, let alone the cultural challenges. So we have the, the cultural barrier. And then there's a difference in terms of how we're taught to think. And what I mean by that in America, uh, and Carol, you probably know this, uh, but, you know, you and uh, the audience members, when you're in America, what do you think the, the – what is being encouraged in public schools? Um, you're asking me. Yeah, yeah, like American public schools. What, what, what do we encourage kids to do? To assimilate, uh, to, to conform, to um, be good students. Oh, yeah, that, to... that would be more from the, from the ethnic piece. But what about just in terms of thinking? Like, how do we want kids to think? Independently. Yeah. Yes. We want them to so we, we are trying their... to encourage kids, yeah, critical thinking skills, right? Think on your own, mm-hmm. have your own um, thoughts and feelings, uh, be autonomous. So what we we call that is more of a Western philosophical or societal way of thinking, which is more of an individualistic mindset. Whereas my parents and their parents and you know, generations before that came from Asian collectivist cultures, which is everything that goes against independence, which is about um, honoring the family, the group conscience, um, harmony, collectivism. So there are so many cultural odds. I'm going to school. They're telling you to raise your hand, you know, um, uh, speak out, have your own opinions, uh, you know, civil disobedience, and everything at home is don't speak out, listen to your elders, listen to what we say. Um, so eventually, getting back to, to your own question in terms of addiction work, I just felt a real like I was on my own island out in the middle of nowhere emotionally, like what do I do with all these feelings? Um, it didn't help that our parents were busy working. My dad was a cook who worked many long hours at a Chinese restaurant. My mom for many years was working at a different Chinese restaurant as a waitress. So there wasn't a lot of adult supervision. Um, so me and my brothers, we just got involved with what – latchkey kids did at the time, video games, um, music, sports. Uh, but I just remember a very young feeling of myself. I remember our parents used to get department store catalogs. And I would just go into um, look at all the different things and circle because our parents um, were also fairly we, – we were fairly poor, so we didn't have a lot of means to buy things. And so I would just – get the department store catalogs, and even though we couldn't purchase toys and uh, other electronic video games and gadgets and gizmos that I was interested in, I would kind of circle the description and circle the things that I wanted, knowing I would never get it, but go into like hours and hours of just fantasizing about what I wanted. And that was a way to kind of help self-soothe some of the pain of of both the cultural differences, but also the kind of the, the, the poverty piece of not having 
having um, any of these items to play with, let alone the, uh, the, the, the lack of supervision. And eventually it kind of grew. I would go into sports. I would play sports by myself. Um, and, and just, just a lot of, a lot of ways to kind of um, disassociate or I would listen to music with number of uh, CDs on it, hours and hours and hours in my room all by myself. Cause that was the only way to, I think for me to survive. That was all. Yeah, that makes a lot. And you were, you were fairly isolated. You didn't feel assimilated at all. Right. Yeah, that was the other cultural piece is uh, I think in my, the book, it's supposed to be released late, late this summer by Central Recovery Press. Um, they also published that New York Times bestseller, My Grandmother's Hands. But I think one of the first lines I have that I remember was like, the first thought I said, I hate myself. That's like one of my first earliest memories because of being in America and just wanting so desperate to fit in, but couldn't. Um, I wasn't white, like mainstream America that I saw in all the TV shows we watch. I wasn't black, uh-huh. like the environment we grew up in. So it's like, what are we? <laughs> you know, all I knew is that we were the other. You know, we're the other that's uh, made fun of, that's seen as exotic, that's seen as like this perpetual foreigner that eats um, just just you know, the perception is, oh, you guys are eating dogs and snakes and all kinds of weird stuff. Like, oh, my gosh. I remember just looking in the mirror and trying to, like, how can I scratch the uh, the skin, the skin tone off my face? I mean, that's kind of how um, drastic it got at one early age point. Wow. That, that feels like a lot of self-hatred. Um, and, and so at what point did you start medicating those feelings? I didn't know it was medication because I was just a kid then. And even in my adult years until I got into therapy, did I realize like, oh my gosh, even just going into fantasy to escape from the daily reality of life uh, was a form of self-medication. So from early on getting those, uh, like, I think I was probably like eight years old or something, seven or eight and circling like, oh, look at this electronic game or, oh, look at this basketball or look at this sporting equipment thing. (laughs) You know, I would read the descriptions, circle it, and just, like, imagine what it would be like to have that. Um, And it didn't even have to be fancy things. Like, you know, um, when we got cereal boxes, anything, any box, anything, anytime we bought anything, I always went to the uh, where was something manufactured and I remember, like, those mm-hmm. cereal boxes, a lot of them were made, like, in uh, Michigan somewhere, right? Um, Grand Rapids, Michigan mm-hmm. is what I remember. Like, I like said, like, oh, wow, what would it be like to be there? And everywhere I – anything I looked at, a book or, you know, a cereal box or anything, like, where was this made? Because the brain just wanted to find something else to to focus on, to to, to, to literally think about another life. Well, I get that. And, you know, even as you describe it, you can very clearly hear how unhappy you were and how you didn't feel like you fit in. So let me ask you, there was such a a difference between being in the majority in Hong Kong and then the minority in South Seattle. 
you, you hung out in your room, um, you occupied your time, and yet in the book you talk about being lost in translation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, at the time, Hong Kong, and probably still is, it's like 90% made up of folks who are Cantonese-speaking Chinese, which is what we were. So at the time, mm-hmm. we were are the majority. If we move back or, you know, if I visit, I'm still considered the majority if I, my proficiency isn't that good. Um, but my parents definitely were the majority. And then, obviously, when we moved to the U.S., we're considered a minority. But we're also a minority within a minority culture because we are living in a predominantly African-American neighborhood of South Seattle. So you're trying to sort through for me, multiple uh, understandings of culture and identity. Okay, what is being asked of me from mainstream America? What is being asked of me from this predominantly black neighborhood I'm in? And what is being asked of me from my uh, culture, my Chinese culture and relatives? And oftentimes, all three of those could be at odds with one another. So when it comes to being lost in translation, some, you know, uh, some of the more basic ones are like just traditional holidays, right? Like uh, Thanksgiving, you know, like, uh, yeah, they have Thanksgiving. No, they don't have Thanksgiving in Hong Kong. But like, you know, Thanksgiving here is a tradition that, you know, I just went with the food. Like everybody's eating turkey, mashed potatoes, uh, cranberry sauce. Can we have that? Can we have that? No, 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 we can't have that. And then uh, you're, you're already feeling a little bit um, other, just even if nobody knows, you internally know you're not able to celebrate like other families here in America, Thanksgiving. So instead, our parents did try to celebrate, and instead they would get us like Peking duck, which is great. Mm-hmm. It's succulent, but it's not Thanksgiving. It's not like what I wanted, uh, you know, my brothers and I, when it came to having a turkey. Like, it took forever. I think by the time we badgered them for about 10 years, it wasn't like late high school that they finally somehow flipped a switch and started doing turkey. Um, so that's like kind of Thanksgiving. When it came to things, something more innocuous, like the tooth fairy, they don't, remember, they don't know anything about the tooth fairy. So a lot of these fairy tales and folklore, it's, it, it's something that uh, I think our son takes, takes, takes for granted because we teach him this at a young age. Like, hey, if you put, a, put your tooth underneath your, uh, your pillow, you know, the tooth fairies might give you a little bit of money or something like that. And I remember I heard it. So as a kid, I put my tooth underneath the pillow and then I woke up the next day and I looked and then I was like, oh my gosh, there's no, there's no money here. There's no tooth fairy. So these are things that I kind of chuckle at when I think about just kind of being uh, lost in translation, a a few just, (laughs) uh, uh, you know, cultural things that our, our parents uh, didn't quite understand, nor did I, for that matter, on why it felt why it felt so important for us to 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 share in these um, holidays and traditions. Well, yeah, and so you were just feeling different all the way around. Even your family did not necessarily want to duplicate that American experience. Um, now, obviously with the tooth fairy and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all those holidays that you really didn't celebrate, it probably felt very hard to 
feel like everybody else. And do you think that that had any impact on you in terms of understanding your culture in America? Um, Well, I think I understand my Asian culture in America pretty well. I think it was hard to convince our parents that the American side was important to integrate. Like they didn't believe in certain things. It was like for Christmas, for example, another (laughs) tradition, right? Like, hey, everybody's getting trees and lights and, you know, uh, can we at least get a tree? Like, oh, you know, like, no, like a tree, it's messy, it smells. And, you know, who's going to clean up the pine needles? And, okay, what about gifts? Can we, like, just exchange regular gifts? Because um, their tradition was to exchange money in what's known as a Chinese red envelope. So they would put uh-huh. money inside a Chinese red en- envelope. And that red envelope is used for a lot of different things. You can use it for a birthday. You can use it for Chinese New Year. You can use it for and put money in it for any occasion. But, but for me, for a child, for Christmas, like I really desperately, I don't care about the dollar amount. I just want something that's not just money. Uh, so there was one uncle we had who kind of went against the grain of sorts, and he did make an effort to buy us things for Christmas. And even to this day, I can still remember them um, because they felt very dear to me in terms of like, wow, we have an uncle who actually tried to, in my mind, broaden our horizons. One year he bought me some, a juggling ball set. It wasn't very expensive, right, you know, and had some instructions on how to juggle. So I learned how to juggle from that. Another year he bought me a stamp collection starter set, which once again wasn't much, but it just gave me um, another way to view. It just kind of opened up the world. Like, wow, look at all these different stamps from different countries. We live in a in a world that's very big with different languages, and it's it was something much more. I received so much more from something as simple as that, as opposed to, you know, a parent or relative giving me twenty bucks here or there. Got it. Now. I got to ask you, at what point did you experience what you reference in the book, Asian shame? Yes, that is a very broad term that um, is so multifaceted. Part of the shame is more like external, right? Like, okay, mainstream America, excuse me, there's shame in being Asian, right? That could be viewed as Asian shame, the shame of being Asian. Uh, But I think when I use that term of feeling Asian shame, it's more of the cultural shame, the collectivist shame of how we were raised to always revere our our, um, last name. So my last name is Louie. So shaming the last name, the Louie name, would defame the whole family and our 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 ancestors and uh, our future generations. Um, there's a Chinese proverb that says, "So ashamed the ancestors of eight generations can feel it." Okay. So what that wow. means and is, so- if you do something in this life, you are affecting. You know, you're going to go back and impact 
uh, eight, eight past generations, let alone the future generations that can come because who knows, people might learn about your shame and um, other Asians would say, hey, you got to stay away. There's some superstition in the Asian culture, right? Like, oh my gosh, if let's say the Louis have been tainted because they're, they come from, I don't know, a lineage of uh, gambling or drugs or uh, bankruptcy or whatever it is, like anything that's shameful, like you don't want to hang around them, divorce, you don't want to hang around them because maybe some of that quote unquote bad luck is going to come your way. So that that's what we mean by how how it could impact future generations and current relationships. Okay, and obviously I know that you really had difficulty assimilating. Was there was there racism in Seattle that, you know, impacted you or your identity? Yeah, I, I sigh because uh, <laughs> how are we defining racism, right? As a kid, kids are going to make fun of each other. That's just what they're born to do. So they're not like outright racists, but, you know, they're going to make fun of you as an Asian person and vice versa. So if I have this vague memory in elementary school where you, you are taught to defend yourself verbally, so people are going to come at you. They're going to call you names, whether you're fat, skinny, smart, dumb, whatever. They're going to make fun, nerdy, ethnicity thrown in. So having an ethnic background is just going to make it – it doesn't matter. If you're white, black, Asian, all of it is fair game where we grew up. So there were uh, taunts and ridicule regarding being Asian and you kind of learn to uh, what, put up a steel wall and reciprocate in kind w- with your own verbal uh, jabs and barbs at whatever elementary age, school age I was. So pretty soon people are like, ooh, you probably don't want to say too many things negatively, race or otherwise, against Sam because he's got a pretty sharp tongue that can defend himself. <laughs> But yeah, well, it was racism sharp. as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I was going to add, if you wanted to, there's adult stuff too. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so kind of just transitioning. Yeah, so like as a child, you know, that's what you kind of expect from other kids. It's like, okay, that's just what kids do. You know, as adults, we, you know, there's more like it. It's not as overt. It's more like microaggression. So my first career was in journalism. And right out the gate, I remember I was applying for some of my first jobs in eastern Washington. And nothing is wrong with eastern Washington. That's just where all the smaller TV stations are. So I wanted to go into uh, broadcast journalism as a TV reporter. And I remember distinctly one of the female news directors uh, who would be in charge of hiring. I said, hey, I'm here to, to, you know, interview for one of your entry-level reporter positions, and she said, um, have you ever considered something in import-exports? And I'm like, what is she talking about? I didn't take it as offensive back then because I didn't even understand what that meant. You know, I was a bit naive. But then when I look back, like, what is this going? Like, like this is what we call microaggressions, right, where, where they make slight um, – that uh, might be hard to kind of pinpoint and say it's specifically racist, but there's like a bias that because I was Asian, she thought I would be better off 
in working in, in like, you know, like, hey, you know, we're here on the Pacific Rim. What you feel, wouldn't that be a better job for you? Like, uh, I don't get it. I just want to be uh, going to journalism. Um, and then, you know, later on through life, it, it could get a little bit more, um, more direct in terms of folks avoiding you, not wanting that when I was working in journalism, not comfortable being interviewed by you because you're Asian, um, and then let alone me working, I worked a number of years in the Midwest, like in Ohio, and just worrying about being the only Asian person out there and how are people going to feel. So, um, yeah, there, yeah, it all kinds of, it's kind of on a continuum when we talk about racism. Okay, well, you know, that makes so much sense. And, again, I, I want to hear your story of addiction in addition to this because we've got a bunch of sex addicts that are probably saying, oh, yeah, this, yeah, is yeah. A great, this is great history, but how does Sam take his addiction to the next <laughs> level? And how do oh, you yeah, recover? How do you take it to the next level? Um, so taking to the next level, uh, once again, with the department store catalogs, once I got bored, not even bored, once I, I think maybe hit the getting closer to puberty, then the uh, the lingerie section started becoming a lot more intriguing, right? And I don't remember masturbating to them at that age at the time, um, but I just remember just being very enamored with women in those, uh, not only in, in in the uh, the ads that came with the department store catalogs, but also in real life. I obviously had crushes on teachers. I had crushes on girls in school, but I didn't never, never really attempted to ask them out because of my own feelings of uh, inferiority. Um, so now what you're seeing is my desire. And what I liked, I actually liked um, – uh, you know, the white girls at school for whatever reason, whether it's mainstream uh, television or media, a lot of it was that because that's what we watched. Um, and that was the standard of beauty. Whenever I saw a girl that I thought was attractive and was white, that was quote unquote, my arousal template, right? This is what made me feel like, Oh, Hey, this is the attraction that, that I'm looking for. Um, but because I didn't get that, I wasn't sure where to go. So um, back then, there was cable TV. Our friends would have it, and they'd be scrambled, and you would hear, like, uh, moans and groans and some of the pornographic um, shows. So that got me kind of intrigued. But I was actually, I don't want to call it a late bloomer per se, but it was more late blooming before the addiction really, quote, took off. And what I mean by that is in college, I finally started dating I wouldn't even call it dating. It was very casual relationships uh, of a sexual nature because I was so afraid that, you know, I would always end the relationship after a couple of weeks as I just was, in my mind, I was wary of being found wanting. Like, oh, my gosh, if I stay, stick around for too long, this girl that I like is going to, you know, find me inadequate in some way. So, you know, I talked to my therapist about it. I called it my escape my escape pod. Anytime it got too hot, I would just hit, hit the escape pod and, you know, jump out. So that was it. You know, that, that was a number of just fleeting uh, sexual relationships. Um, at the time, I didn't know it was addiction, but I do know it was feeling it was negative because uh, I wondered, or I even, I had a lot of shame around it um, because I told myself, gosh, 
you know, if, if God would just strike me down and give me AIDS from having unprotected sex, this would prove to me that I'm a quote unquote bad person. Right. It was so, for, for whatever reason, I had picked up those shame messages early on. Uh, you know, God didn't strike me, strike me down. And after college, uh, so right around college is probably where the pornography, so whether it was um, a lot of casual sex and then some masturbation was mixed in. And right around nearing, nearing the end of college, I was moving off into the world of journalism. I was in some of these small little cities by myself, very scared, very nervous, didn't know what to make of it. And keep in mind, Carol, I am the oldest. I'm the first generation here. So even though our grandparents, my grandparents on my dad's side are here and my aunts and uncles are here, they're already adults. You know, nobody had been fully educated like I am. And so I'm the tip of the spear for the whole Louis family from three generations down. I'm here supposed to lead the family. I'm the oldest of three boys, and my dad is the oldest of uh, seven, so I'm the oldest of the oldest. They're not telling me this, but I already can feel it, like, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of pressure for me to, quote, unquote, succeed in however we describe that term. So as I moved into the field of journalism, I just felt this heavy weight and burden that I had to succeed no matter what. And uh, one way to mitigate the fear, well, at the time, the, you know, they, uh, I would go to the bookstores. Well, not, before even the adult bookstores, we had like normal blockbuster video stores. And I would go to blockbuster videos and, you know, kind of gravitate towards the more um, uh, steamy, B-rated shows, you know, whatever. Bad plot lines had some sexuality in it. Uh, possibly some nudity too, but it, it was all wrapped up. It was still, you know, part of Blockbuster. Eventually, I was like, you know what? This isn't enough. I'm, I'm, I'm really petrified of not succeeding. I'm really scared of what this means if I was to return back to Seattle as a unsuccessful journalist. In actuality, I already had an escape plan. We talk about this escape pod. I told myself if I failed my first year in journalism, I would not – I had a brief thought about suicide, but that was too, too scary for me. I thought, okay, I can't do that, but my escape pod is telling me I would have to go to another city so I can hide and not face the uh, fear of rejection or the shame of having shamed my family and my Asian community in Seattle. So maybe I would start all over in another City, like a San Francisco where I could hide myself in, 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 in that community. Um, but going back right. to, to the small city, I'm uh, petrified. So I'm going to, now I gravitate towards adult bookstores and, you know, <laughs> I'm worried that I'm going to get fired. Somebody's going to recognize me as the news reporter on TV. Like I didn't know what my rights were like, Oh my gosh, if I'm buying adult magazines, what's going to happen? bought a bunch of magazines, VHS tapes at the time. Uh, and that was used in conjunction with dating when it happened. Um, I'm tr I'm, I feel like I'm rushing because I want to get rushed through it a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, it continues. Well, to and I appreciate that because I want yeah. to get, I definitely want to get your poem. I want you to be able to read your poem, at least oh, a yeah. part of it. So, yeah. so at what um, age it escalates. Did you, yeah. 
it's progressive, right? It gets worse. So at what age did you decide that I am going to get healthy? Well, I wish I could say it was I, right? A lot of times it's uh, spouse-induced. So I was in uh, Toledo, Ohio. I moved up a couple ranks here and there. Um, Now I'm scared uh, out of my brains because I'm so far away from Seattle, and now this is what we call legitimate television. Back then I was considered a one-man band where I'm the videographer, I'm the reporter, and I'm the photographer all rolled into one. <laughs> so it's a little bit like uh, you know college-ish material. So it's not not the most professional look, right? Once I moved to Ohio, it's like wow, Toledo. Even it's like wow, I have my own videographer that I'll go out with. All I will have to do is do do the news reporting aspect of it. But with that came extreme extreme performance anxiety because uh, we went live every day. That's what television uses, right? You've got to go live every day. Um, but I was still such a, a novice at the craft. I would fumble, make all kinds of mistakes on air, bumbling around, and I would just have this sinking pit in the stomach feeling where I just wanted to curl up in the fetal position I won't say die, but like just get lost forever. Nobody sees me. So whenever I felt that feeling, which was quite often because I was by myself in Ohio working in a trade that I wasn't, I was not very good at. And whenever I made an on-air blunder, I would remember going back home. And now this is the nascent of uh, online uh, pornography. I would start, I mean, it, it was easily multiple times a day by then. Um, and it continues to escalate, but uh, I don't know if I should <laughs> pause for a second. Oh, yeah, 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 how, how I got help, right? So eventually um, met a woman. Uh, we got engaged, and we, there was premarital counseling involved through, through the, the church that we were attending. And at the time, well, it was a retired psychologist so he he was not very you know this was like 20 years ago 20 something years ago so there was not a lot of understanding um uh in in some of those in yeah especially from him so his advice i remember it very clearly like oh hey sam's just going through a phase let him just do more of it to to to, um basically do more porn let's just get it out of the system and in my head i'm like well that does not sound right but i'm going to agree with this psychologist because that's what the addict part of me wants right (laughs) so once again uh wife thinks it's just going underground that sam's taking care of it by by um by, by doing more porn and eventually go away but several years later it didn't go away it continued to ramp up and uh, this is my first wife. She she saw me masturbating to porn late one night when I was coming back from a, when I was off my uh, shift. I was now working in Los Angeles, so that to imagine the pressure there. Um, and it just kind of all exploded right there. And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, um, I think I need help. There, there's, but you know, it was also punctuating or, or piercing the the shame spot if we talk about shame spirals, it was really spiraling out of control at that time, at that point. Well, got it. Well, I know that we have to end and you wrote a very powerful poem, uh, redefining your shame. 
Can you share just a bit of that with our listening audience as we wrap up the show? Yeah. So I spent so many years talking about it, writing about it, um, that I really started hating shame, right? Like, oh, my gosh, there's this despicable part of me, the shame of addiction, the shame of my culture, the shame of feeling bad, that I hated shame. And a few years back, I started um, doing more right brain therapeutic exercises. I had done a lot of, like, group therapy, individual therapy, and still do, do individual therapy. But as my journey of healing um, started going more right brain, meaning, like, just not as logical, <laughs> well, you know, doing some uh, drawings, doing, uh, doing poetry, um, it, it started releasing a lot of different things within. And so one of it was this, um, this, 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 this approach that is, I didn't realize until I read it years later, uh, termed under internal family systems, that you have to dialogue with these parts of yourself and that there are no bad parts. I had no idea that there are no bad parts, shame included. I always thought of it as a bad part until uh, this was about four or five years ago, I started embracing it. And, and when I mean by embracing it, that's why I titled the, um, the term redefining my shame. And that kind of triggered another growth in, in my healing. So I'll just read the, the, the poem here, redefining my shame. I used to hate okay. my shame, run away from it, hide from it, ignore it, deny it, pretend it's not there. Now, like a parent to a child, I embrace it. No more shame in naming it, sharing it, using it to my advantage, helping others heal. Where I once whimpered, I now boldly proclaim it. Where I once drowned in it, I've now harnessed it like a mule. Use it as a tool, redefined it, no longer a soul crusher. Use my shame, a light for others to escape self-blame. That is really, really powerful. Wow. You are yeah, so that's like one you. of a number of poems from, uh, I wrote this, so I put it in a book called Spoken, Not Broken, Healing Through Poetry. That's on Amazon if anybody's interested. Um, but yeah, that really helps well, me re- recognize that. I can't tell people how they can I, get a hold of you and where they can get your book. Um, so yeah, my book's on Amazon. Uh, even the one that's to come out, I think you can still pre-order it. Um, you just, I think you just Google my name under Amazon. Uh, if not, you could go to my website, um, louieassociates.com. And that's my last name, L-O-U-I-E, associates.com. Folks can contact me or reach out to me. There's some links there as well. Um, but yeah, I feel like this has kind of been a long journey. It's been a 20 plus year journey of, of healing and, and once again, rediscovery. So if there's one thing I want to tell listeners is that, you know, the, the, the journey of healing and recovery is never complete. I'm always trying to, um, find ways to better myself, to learn and grow. And, you know, I'm, 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 Inspiration, I'm, yeah, you I'm got a hard stop. Thank you so much for sharing oh, yeah, so no much worries. about yourself. And the book is phenomenal. And everybody go to Amazon and get Passport to Shame from Asian Immigrant to American Addict. I love the name of that. And keep us posted. Thanks, Carol. <laughs> You're welcome. Yes, I Make will. Make it a good Appreciate day. Appreciate it. Uh-huh.
Okay, bye-bye. Bye. All right, well, we've got that hard, hard So as I say to you all, to only be one of you at all times, fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Talk to you later. <laughs>